0: Go to the Lord in prayer. There we go. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, that you are so holy and so sovereign over our lives, Lord, that we could sing a song like that one. God, that you would answer our prayers in a way that we would never expect, but that your whole intent with our lives, Lord, and with everything that you do, is your own glory and ultimately our holiness and our good, Lord. And um, we just thank you that if we're in Christ, Lord, if we are your children by virtue of Jesus Christ and his blood, Lord, that we have this wonderful opportunity to live a life that's being conformed through all the trials, through the angry powers of Satan and all of his demons attacking us. Anything that is employed that happens to us is ultimately going to work out together for our sanctification, Lord, and for our good in the end. That we be able to get to the end of our life still having faith and still having patience and still having endurance to run the race because of the grace of Jesus Christ, Lord. and God, we thank you that you are that kind of a God with a holy and wonderful nature and a holy and wonderful name that we praise this evening. And God, I just do pray that we would draw near to you in humility this evening, that we would be able to empty ourselves, confessing our sins, emptying ourselves of our own distractions, our own desires, our own wants, surrendering ourselves entirely to you, Lord, casting our cares upon you, casting our burdens upon you. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit's power and presence this evening with each and every one of us who's in Christ, and each and every one of us praying that even in the hearts of those who do not yet know you, that your spirit would be moving, that your spirit would be what is working, and your spirit would be active and illuminating our hearts and giving us light, shining light on the words of the Bible, shining light on your truth, and allowing us to just rest in you, trust in you, God. Father, we have many needs, we have many desires, we have many issues in which we lack things, Lord, in this life as human beings, as weak people like we are, and we just pray now for those things, Lord. We pray, uh, Especially for those who we've heard about that have had health issues this week. We pray for Seth's family. pray for Seth's dad. We pray also for Linda Forrest, Lord. She's been having such a rough time with her health lately. I do pray, Lord, that you would please do a mighty work. Do something in her heart. Allow her to finally step into faith in Christ. To finally rest her eternal hope and everything she has on Christ in these last days of her life, Lord. And God, I do pray for the ministry work, the mission work that this church is involved with. I pray for all the RBNet missionaries. I pray that you'd give them strength in whatever difficult fields and difficult work they may be involved, God. I pray for APC. I pray also for Tiago and the Oliveira family. I pray for them, especially with Tiago being so busy, having so much on his plate, I do pray that you would uh, just keep their family tight-knit and strong and encouraged in the Lord, Lord, and we know that you're able to do that. Uh, We pray also for all the RTS students that are here, Lord. I pray that uh, the ones that are visiting, the ones that are at our church, I pray that you would continue to prepare them and edify them, continue to allow them to find joy and fullness in their studies and to be lifted up to new heights in their understanding of you, but also in their humility and their submission to you, God. and um, Father, I also pray for the upcoming crusade. I know that this is a time that we've been praying for for a long time, and it's coming up now, God. And I do pray that this would be something that would actually bear fruit in this region in which we live, that there would be true conversion, true revival. Ultimately, I pray that we as a Reformed church committed to the Word of God and the truths of Scripture, I pray that we would be able to also faithfully be there to serve. But then also, Lord, I pray for all the churches in this region. I pray for a reformation. I pray for a turning back to what the Bible says about you and about how you work and about what you do, how you save people. I pray that in this time of chaotic Ness, Lord, as our world seems to be kind of spinning a little bit in uh, terms of morals, in terms of not being able to think clearly anymore, not being able to necessarily tell their right hand from their left, like the people of Nineveh. Even so, we know your spirit can move in a place like that and give revival and give renewal and give just a great outpouring of your spirit, Lord, to be able to make new disciples, to bring reformation, to bring commitment to the Bible, to to bring obedience and holiness and true worship. And I just pray that we'd see that in our day too. And even in this church, Lord, I pray for our church to be healthy and the spirit to be moving and active amongst us as we seek to lift each other up and encourage and edify one another using all the gifts you've given us to just bless one another and Encourage one another Lord, and also lastly, I want to pray for this conflict in the Middle East right now uh, with just this kind of news this this area of the world being always so turbulent and full of turmoil, we do pray for the families of those who have perished, We pray for the lives of uh, Americans and anyone else who are over there, and I pray for the the peace to be reestablished or at least a ceasefire and The violence to come to a quick end, Lord. And Father God, we um, just pray all of this in your name. And now as we turn to open the scriptures, God, we are very needy, we're very eager, God, that you would please shine your light on your word. Please open up our minds, give our minds the light of knowledge and give us a light of holiness to see where we can change our lives and reform our lives and Give us the light of joy, joyfulness as we study the Word. That it's not just going through the motions and listening to another sermon, but that you'd keep us realizing how much joy and how much purpose and how much love and how much wonder there is in this book, God. And So I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we're going to be uh, doing a much shorter passage than I think I've ever preached here before. John 8, verse 12. One verse is the key text for this evening. And the topic is going to be the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. So it's his second of his I am statement. So we have seven I am sayings that we're going through in the evening services in the book of John. And so um, tonight I'm going to read this text, but throughout the sermon, I'm not only going to be in this one text, although I'm not going to make you jump all over the place, but we'll be walking through the book of John somewhat and Seeing this theme of Jesus as the light of the world, as as the one who is shining light into the darkness of our world, and hopefully we'll be able to unpack and uncover that. So please turn to John 8, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. That's our word for this evening. So, as we begin to study this verse, I want to first talk a little bit about light. Okay. After this, I'll talk a little bit about darkness, and then we'll go into a few other things as well. But the, books, the book of John starts off talking about light, actually. In John 1, verse 4, it's, it says, In him, that is Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of men. And it says, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. This is how the book of John begins. And so from the beginning of the book, the way of thinking about Jesus' life and ministry is as a ray of light. You think of a ray of light entering into a dark world and illuminating it. As a ray of light entering into a dark room and illuminating it. The Father sends the Son to act as the light of men. In verse 1, verse 4, it says, um, the life Jesus was the life, and that life was the light of men, and it shines into the darkness. So that's the that is the Father sending the Son into this world where we are, and so this light shining into the darkness reminds us very much of Genesis, so the very beginning. At the very beginning of the Bible, we read there that in Genesis again, it's interesting how John set it up. It's like I know there weren't verses when he wrote the Book of John, but it's like John one verse four, and then in Genesis one verse three and four. There, this verse appears. It says, God said, let there be light. Okay, let there be light. And then it says, there was light. God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So at this moment in the very beginning of creation, God speaks. And light enters into a dark and formless world. And so this is like an overlap, a comparison between John and Genesis. At the very first creation... God said, let there be light, and this light penetrates in and enters into the world. So before the light shone, before the light burst into the world in Genesis, it says in that, in that same scripture, it says that the world was chaotic and formless and empty. It was void. So there was basically this darkness over the face of the deep. And then the first thing that God did to start making the world was that he said, let there be light. He okay, so let there be light. He created the world and light shone in. And it's very fascinating. The very first thing that God ever says is good in the Bible is light. Isn't that interesting? The very first thing he says is good is light. Another thing about life, light is that throughout the, throughout the book of John, life and light are very closely intertwined with one another. And that makes a lot of good sense. Like, for instance, here in 8 verse 12, life and light come together. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The light of life. So life and light go together. So God speaks into the world, and he creates the world. He speaks light in, and after that, life appears. And it really makes a lot of sense, because if you think about it, what happens to a plant? The minute you stop shining light on it, the life goes out of it, right? Life is dependent on light. Our whole life, each of us, in fact. If you didn't get vitamin D on your skin from the light of the sun, you would die. Life and light are so intimately connected. And John knows this, and he brings this element out about light. And so we must understand in our passage this evening that the same way that God's light flooded into the world at the very beginning of creation is the same way that Jesus Christ comes here into the world in our passage, here in the book of John, and shines light, and he's trying to make a new creation. Jesus Christ is coming on a mission, and he's, and he's recreating the world. He's making a new creation. He's making it all good again, right? Because the world was fallen, he's making it good again, and he's bringing it to life. So as the light shines into the world, he brings this world to life, this world that was that is fallen. And we'll look a little bit more at that when we study the darkness. So now we looked at the light. We looked a little bit of a summary and intro on what the light is like. Now that we've heard about that, let's consider the darkness. So since that time, right, at the beginning of creation, the light shone in and it was formless and void. But after the light shone in, God created all the life and everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was in harmony. But then we know that because of the fall... The world that God created that was good, that was perfect, where the creatures were all in harmony, was plunged into a state of darkness and a state of cursedness. Right, And at that moment, the result of mankind's sin and rebellion against God because of sin was darkness, created darkness in the world. So this world that was good and perfect and, uh, and everything was in order turned dark. And this is not just a literal, like, physical darkness. It doesn't mean that... It was dark, and there was no sun shining. It's a moral darkness, an ethical darkness. So sin, when Adam and Eve sinned in the world, they caused the whole world to fall into a state of darkness. So the result of the darkness that comes from the fall, we can look in Scripture and we can understand what that means. What does what this world turn to, or what, what happens to the world when sin enters it? And so I want us to note six things. I mentioned these in Sunday school a while ago, but they're very helpful. I think I'm going to say them again here. When Adam and Eve sinned, this darkness can be characterized as them being alienated. And that means separated or set, set apart from, from this harmony and this perfection, this state of light and goodness that was there at the beginning. And so first of all, they were alienated from God. We see in the Bible that they hid themselves from God, right? And then the next thing is they were alienated from each other, right? Because it says they were ashamed of one another. And not only, not only were they ashamed of one another... Just a little while after that, they started to fight with one another. Human beings in the darkness fighting and ashamed of, uh, uh, alienated one from the other. The next thing is uh, they were alienated from paradise. So as they were cast out, as they sinned, they're cast out of a perfect place. They're cast out of this paradise, this place where there was always perfection and sinless existence. A place of perfect light and joy at all times. The next thing is that they were alienated from eternal life. So as sin made it um, as sin entered and they sinned and, and, and this darkness came upon them, they no longer could live forever. Suddenly, death came upon them. So darkness and death are, again, very closely characterized. So there's light and there's life closely connected, and there's darkness and death closely connected. This darkness of sin has alienated them from eternal life. right? And then the next thing is they're alienated from themselves. This is very, again, this is a very um, interesting way to think about it. But the fall actually caused man to not understand himself anymore. He doesn't understand himself the way that he ought to, or the way that God has initially created him to be able to understand himself. And the final thing, and, and this is the whole universe, whole world-encompassing reality, is that because of sin, because of this darkness entering into the world that was initially a world of light and harmony and perfection, everything was good? There's actually the fact that the people are alienated from nature. They're alienated from the very world itself, right? All of a sudden, where gro- the ground used to bring forth so much fruit and so much everything perfectly, now all of a sudden the world is cursed because of sin. Life is suddenly filled with toil and hardship and pain and darkness. And also, when you work, it's not easy anymore. You've got a blood, sweat, and tears kind of thing going on. So these seven things I just noted, I think seven, one, six seven. Six things I noted. Those things are all illustrations of, of the um, darkness into which the world has fallen. So we saw that light element and understanding it in the book of John. And then we see this as a, as a way to bring us to understanding the darkness aspect. This is what the world has fallen into. And so, in, and a way to sum all of this up is that the impact of the fall is to say that the world was plunged into complete blindness and chaos yet again, into complete darkness yet again. Just like at the beginning when it said the world was formless and void, here we have the world plunged into chaos, plunged into darkness, plunged into alienation. And to better understand this, think of it this way. Darkness has pervaded every aspect. It's not to say that every single thing in the world is all miserable and all darkness now. But every aspect is touched by the darkness to some extent. It's like when you go into a room and you uh, pull a little string and the light goes off, right? There's nowhere in the room that does not get impacted by that. Every little nook, every cranny becomes dark. And that's the way we should think of this moral darkness that comes upon the earth. The moral darkness that comes upon the earth is such that basically every human interaction, every single aspect of creation has been impacted to some extent by this sin, by this, by this moral darkness that's impacted things. And this leads to death. This leads to darkness. This leads not to life, but this leads to destruction. This leads to chaos. The world is such that men are born in sin, when they're born, they're in sin, and all they know and all their interactions are tainted in some respects by sin, and unless they see the light of the glory of God, unless the light shines on them, that light that said in the beginning that, that let there be light, or that light that comes into the world as the light of men, like at the beginning of John, unless that light shines on them, unless they're born again, or made new, recreated, like this chaotic world at the beginning, needed to be spoken into and needed light, and needed life. Unless that takes place for them, a man will always remain in darkness. What we all as human beings need is for God to shine His light on us. He needs to speak He needs to speak his light and his life into our lives. And so the world into which Christ came was and is lost in darkness. It was and is lost in darkness, and a deep need of humanity is for us to be restored to the light. It's for us to be recreated. To have eternal life given to us. To have this pervasive and all-invading presence and power of sin and of darkness taken away. And this is beautifully summed up for us when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 goes like this. To this day, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, because it means so much to me, but it says here, For it is the God... Who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we need as human beings, as those who are plunged in this world of darkness. What we need as fallen people is to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, what does the verse say? How do we see the light? It says we must look at the face of Jesus Christ. Right? It was, we must look at the light of the world. And that's who we're talking about tonight. That's what this verse is all about. The light of the world. That one that can take us from that state of darkness. From that all-pervading impact of sin. And bring us into a state of life. A state of light. And this is what we're, we're going to do tonight. Is My aim is for us to see the face of Jesus Christ. To see him walking in this dark world and interacting with darkness, but ultimately to see how his light is victorious over this dark world and the, and the world in which he was at that time. So the main portion of the sermon, we're going to go and we're going to walk through the book of John and we're going to show something, which is that everywhere Jesus brought his light, so everywhere he brought his word and everywhere he brought his truth, everywhere that he carried himself as the light of the world... There was always darkness right there, ready to oppose him. Always darkness confronting him and, and opposing what he was doing. And so, like I said at the beginning, this, uh, this aspect of the opposition or, or the darkness going against the light is, very, is, is clearly shown in that same passage I read at the start. It says, in him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men says the light shines in the darkness and then it says the darkness has not overcome it which is amazing right the darkness has not overcome the light even though it tried so very hard and so when we walk through the book of john we're going to see so often how the darkness tries to overcome the light but it cannot so wherever jesus walks the light shines but there's always darkness there trying to overcome it so the reality is And very interestingly, John does this throughout the book up until a certain point. There's almost never a moment where he speaks about light, where John mentions the word light, where the word darkness is not closely followed behind. It's almost never the case. There's always darkness where where Jesus' light is in this world. Because it's so closely trying to oppose it, trying to overcome the light. But thankfully, like I said, it does not succeed. You can't really go very far... And also, the other thing is you can't go very far in the book of John. You can only read a few chapters or or paragraphs before you come across another example of light and then another example of darkness, which is illustrated by the fallen human heart, the heart of a human being uh, that is opposing that light. So let's now travel through the book and see what I mean when I say that the darkness always opposes the light. And so I don't think you need to try to find these verses or... Catch up to it because I'm gonna go pretty quickly through a large section of John and just show us how it is that Jesus is constantly being opposed by this darkness that's in the world. He's the light, he brings that into the world, and everywhere he goes, he's constantly being opposed by it. For instance, in John 3, Jesus is explaining the gospel. It's a famous passage, right? John 3:16 is in John 3. He's he's explaining that they need to be born again. He's he's explaining the contrast in John 3 between the light and the darkness. And there, uh, in John 3, verse 19 to 20, it says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We have this beautiful statement by by Jesus saying, listen, the reason people don't like Jesus, the reason they don't like the light is because they they have a darkness problem. They have a moral problem. They're actually insecure. They're actually scared that if his light shines on them, if he spends too much time with them, he'll expose them for what they truly are. Liars, sinners, lusters, thieves, whatever it is. When Jesus is on the scene, he's in the business of shining light and that makes people who are sinners feel very, very uncomfortable. And so that's why they oppose him constantly. That's why immoral people, that's why sinners want to oppose Jesus Christ and go against him. And this is something that we... Uh, need to understand as well as Christians. First of all, as Christians, if you're shining the light. You're going to have opposition because of this because you, hopefully, by your actions and by your words, are exposing sin as you encounter it in a certain way. Even if you don't directly say that's wrong to somebody, you still, by the way you conduct yourself and you're not approving of it, garner some opposition from it. Um, but at the end of the day, we must follow Christ and His... In his way that he shines a light. But that's not, that's not the number one thing I'm going for here. I just want to show us the way that they oppose Jesus when he comes with this light. So here we learn that it's because they are guilty and Jesus is perfect that the people actually oppose him. The reason they oppose the light is a moral reason because they don't like Jesus Christ. They don't like the fact that he exposes them. But interestingly, ironically enough, the thing they need the most is actually to spend time with him. The thing they need the most is to actually let Him expose them. That's what we should do. As sinners, when we hear this call tonight, when we see, hopefully, Jesus' character on display, the face of Jesus Christ, remember, like I said, we want to see the light of Jesus Christ. When we see this tonight, I hope that this draws us to understand this, this is uncomfortable because it's shining on our hearts. It's shining on those spots that are dark, those sins that we harbor, those things that we have inside. And as it does that, it's hopefully exposing those things, allowing us an opportunity to repent, allowing us an opportunity to come clean, to come into the light. And so we shouldn't rebel and, and try to overcome the light, just like these uh, Pharisees and opponents throughout the book of John do, but instead we should try to submit to God in it. And then in John 6, uh, we, we looked at the three, and now John 6, we see that, his, that this dark and stubborn rebel that takes place as the Jews... Uh, grumble and complain about Jesus. So they basically think he's just an ordinary man because they say they know his mom and dad. They know his parents. And, the, and this is also another thing that takes place with his brothers, his very own brothers in the flesh. In other words, sinful human beings like us, not born of the Virgin Mary, but sinners like, like us. They don't even believe he's the Savior. They don't even believe he's the light. They don't even believe he's the Messiah. So even his own family and those who know him the best, who grew up in his town... They can't even see the light. And later in the same chapter, his own disciples, they actually grumble and complain. So his friends, the people who've been spending time with him, they grumble and they complain and they say that the things that he's saying are too difficult to understand. So they don't even understand. Their minds, their minds have actually been darkened and they're unable to comprehend his teaching. And the darkness always struggles to comprehend the word. We should understand that. The darkness that we have as sinners. The darkness always struggles to comprehend God's Word. If His Spirit doesn't shine in our hearts, if His Spirit doesn't work in our minds, we would would rather push that Word away. We would struggle against that Word as opposed to accepting it, as opposed to submitting to it. People in the darkness would rather dismiss the Word of God or they'd rather treat it as a fairy tale. They'd rather say, no, that's that's too good to be true. They don't want to... The light is so... Crazy, really, if you think about it. The light is saying there's everlasting life to be had. There's purity and holiness and joy to be had. The darkness would rather push that away. The darkness would rather say, no, that isn't for me. That's a fairy tale. That's the way that the darkness opposes the Word of God, and that's the way we see it throughout the book of John. In chapter 7, we see even more opposition. We see that Jesus does a wonderful healing. But the thing is, those people who are in darkness... They hate Jesus and they get angry at Him. They even accuse the Son of God, the light of the world, of having a demon inside of Him. That's what they do. They attack Him and they accuse Him of having a demon. That's how much they hate the light. The dark opponents are so wrapped up in their own tradition and their own sin that they would rather condemn and oppose someone who is clearly bringing the light, who is clearly bringing healing into the world. You can't look at a cripple or a blind person healed and, and say that's not good, that's not light, that's not a good thing that Jesus has done, but yet they do. They look at that, they see a cripple and a blind person healed, and rather than submitting to it, they'd rather attribute that to demons. They'd rather attribute that to Satan. They attack Jesus and blaspheme God in the worst kind of way. In chapter 8, right after our text about Jesus as the light of the world, the Pharisees respond as they are representatives of the darkness. And what they do is they actually claim that Jesus' witness is not true. They say this directly to his face, and they say they're basically saying, Jesus, you're a liar. You can look there since I haven't you can look at this one, eight verse thirteen. It says The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. They're telling the light of the world, the one who brings nothing but truth, they're telling him that he's a liar. Later on in the same chapter, these same Jews proclaim that their position as Abraham's descendants, so in other words, as children of Abraham, their position as children of Abraham is what saves them, instead of faith in God. Okay, so these, these Jews um, are ones who have a tremendous amount of pride in their own ethnic and their own genealogy, their own uh, heritage, I guess you could say. And what Jesus does is he exposes the darkness of their hearts by revealing that even though they are children of Abraham, they don't have that faith that I talked about at the beginning, that faith that looks to Jesus, the face of Jesus Christ and the light of Jesus Christ, that faith that allows the light to shine on their hearts and have their hearts be renewed. Instead, they're filled with darkness. These people, these Pharisees are filled with hateful murder. They reveal by their hatefulness and by their hatefulness of their hearts that they're actually blinded and, is, and enslaved by their father who is Satan. Right? They, they, they're saying, I'm a child of Abraham. They may in fact have been along the, the genealogy of Abraham. But if you don't have faith in Christ, if you, don't have, if you can't see the light of the very light of the world standing in front of you, then you're not a child of Abraham. You're rejecting The very God who was the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here we have it. That they were actually submitted to Satan and not to God. And the thing is, they even take this to a crazy extreme. They actually flip the whole script over and they start accusing the light. So they start accusing Jesus Christ of being a Samaritan. Jesus is the very genealogical hope that Israel has had. He's the one Israel has been waiting for their whole life. He's the one that Israel's whole genealogies and all of their descendants have been pointing to, and yet they accuse him so cruelly as supposed children of Abraham. They say, you're not a Jew, you're a Samaritan. They actually claim after that, in addition to the fact that they say he's not even a child of Abraham, they then attack Jesus and again say that he has a demon. So you can see this insane amount of darkness, the way that darkness just distorts their whole perspective, right? Right? Later on, when Jesus reveals who he is, he says that he's the God-man. Seth talked about this before. He said, before Abraham was, I am. You know, I am who I am. That's the name of God. That's the name of the Israelite God, Yahweh. And Jesus is associating himself with that, and he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. And when they hear that, instead of submitting to him, instead of, acknowledging that he's the light of the world instead of believing in him and loving him and worshiping him instead they pick up rocks and they try to throw them at him to kill him they want to kill the light and so in this moment Jesus is saying that he's the transcendent God that he'll be with his people that you can live eternally if you'll just submit to him and love him but instead they turn their backs on him and instead of submitting to him they want to put the light out they literally want to quench the light Think of Jesus as a candle in the room and they're trying to put that candle out. They're trying to throw rocks at him to get him to shut up. They're trying to get him to quit shining his light. That is an illustration of the way that the darkness works in our world. Trying to put that light out. It's not going to want it to shine. It doesn't let it shine. It wants to quench the light. So that's chapter 8. And in chapter 9, Jesus does... Something unimaginable to anyone's expectations, and what he does is he shines his light so that a man who is born blind, who's been bo- who's been blind his entire life, is able to see. He does this right before this right before he does this. He actually again announces that he's the light of the world. He again says the same sentence from eight verse twelve here, where he says that he's the light of the world. And the wonderful thing about that is, in this moment, he's he's saying. He's the light of the world that gives sight to the blind. And He's the light of the world that gives sight to to the blind, not only physically, but also spiritually. So when either of us, I don't know of any of us that are blind, but at some point if you're a Christian today, at some point you were blind. But Jesus Christ says, I'm the light of the world, and He gives sight to a blind man who's been born blind and has lived his whole life blind. And it's not just to say, I have power to heal blind people, which is amazing. It's also to say, I have power to heal spiritual darkness and blindness that you have suffered with since birth. Since you've been covered with the original sin of Adam. And the thing is, these dark people, the opponents of Jesus, the darkness in this book of John, comes again to the forefront. And it's unbelievable this time too. They think of every possible excuse to say that that guy who was born blind, who is now standing in front of them and can see, they think of every possible excuse not to believe it. First they call the blind man and interrogate him. Then they call the blind man's parents. Then they call the blind man a second time. And even after the blind man comes again and again confirms to them, I was in fact blind, I can now see. Even after that, and he comes and he tries to evangelize them, which is really cool. The blind guy was blind. Nobody cared about the blind guy. All of a sudden, the blind guy can see. Okay, he saw the light. He can see that Jesus is the light of the world. The blind guy was blind. And now all of a sudden, he's evangelizing the religious leaders of Israel, trying to get them to believe in the light too. It's an unbelievable thing. And yet, they still cast him out of the temple. They still throw the blind guy away. They say, get out of here. We don't want to listen to you. We don't want the light. They literally watched a guy who was physically blind, who can now see, and tried to evangelize them. And yet they still cast him out. That is the darkness of the human condition. That is the darkness of those who reject Christ, the light of the world. In chapter 10, after Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd and opposes the evil one who comes to steal and kill and destroy... The servants of darkness, these same people that cast the blind man out, they again turn on Jesus and they say that he's insane. Again they say he's full of demons. And again the darkness tries murdering the light because they accuse him of blasphemy because he makes himself equal with God. So again they try to quench that light. They try to quench that flame. They see the face of Jesus, but they try to quench it instead. But we should see the beauty in that face. We should see the beauty in the light and who Jesus is. In chapter 11, a famous chapter, Lazarus dies and he's raised from the dead by the light of the world. Jesus Christ comes and raises him from the dead. So before he is raised, several of the onlookers show the darkness that's in them. They show the the blackness of their hearts because what they say is they scoff at Jesus. They scoff at the light and what they say is they go, Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're not even excited that the light showed up. Instead, they think of the most negative way to respond in that situation. There are some people of faith, though, who are very excited that Jesus came. They're very excited to see what Jesus will do. And Jesus raises him. Jesus speaks to him, the words of life, the words of light, and raises Lazarus up from the grave. He is the one who has the power to raise us, to resurrect us from the dead. And, it, and another thing happens here then afterwards, after the, Lazarus is raised up, after this amazing miracle has taken place, the, the leaders, the people who hate Jesus, the darkness who hates the light, again they desire to kill him because they actually care less about the light, they care less about worshiping God and Jesus Christ than they do about their own little nation and their tradition. They literally say, if Jesus keeps doing stuff like this, our nation is going to get wiped out. Our little proud, little traditional nation is going to get, ripped, get wiped away. This is where their real identity lies. This is where their real value lies, in their nationality, in their own identity, in their little tiny piece of land that they have over there. And you wouldn't believe this. You thought the way they treated that blind guy was bad? Now, after Lazarus has literally been dead, he was dead. He was wrapped in grave clothes. He was smelling at this point. He was dead and raised. After that, they actually start to make decisions. They start to make plans to get him to be put to death too. They don't want to only kill the light. They also want to kill anyone that the light touches. So they're literally ready to... Even wipe Lazarus out as well. So sadly for the Jews, this point in the, in the Gospel of John is basically where John marks the final rejection of Jesus by the Jews. So he's basically saying that Jesus the light has been walking openly among them, doing many signs and wonders, doing many things to make himself manifest to them. Pure grace, kindness that he would come to these dark people and show them his light. But yet they so often reject him time after time after time after time that now Jesus says that he's no longer going to walk openly among them. The light of the world has been so intensely rejected by the darkness here, by these people here, that he would now give them what their dark hearts wanted. He was now going to stop walking among them for a time. He stops doing his signs, He stops persuading them publicly, and so at this point in chapter 12, um, a little bit more comes up where the dark hearts of the authorities are further revealed. What this, um, here it's shown that those in darkness would rather not associate with the light. So uh, this, is, this is kind of a turning point in the book. At this point, um, Jesus actually begins to be more private with his ministry. He begins to talk more privately, but John takes note there at this part of the book and he and he notices there are some of these jews there are some of these people who actually like the light, who think that he 's saying true things and who want to believe him. there are some of them who have seen the light, but an interesting thing is there's a there's a very um, sinister form of darkness still at work in them because it says they wouldn't speak out openly about it. They wouldn't proclaim it openly. Why? Because it says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So this is this turning point. These people are finally rejected. And at this point, this is the last time that John mentions this theme of light in the book of John. He says that the Jews have rejected the light and here he, uh, here Jesus loudly proclaims one last time, and he says at the end of chapter 12, I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then we see these quotes from Isaiah and other things going on that basically say, Israel has rejected Jesus. Israel, the people of Abraham, have rejected Jesus Christ, and they're now going to be the ones who actually put him to death. And um, now, in the final portion of John's Gospel what we see is that this public ministry, all of this public stuff that has been taking place is now turned away. And now what's going to happen is that the darkness is going to try and achieve a final victory. The darkness thinks it can get them. The darkness thinks they can actually quench the light and they're going to try to put a final victory in play here upon Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The first thing we see is that the devil puts murderous intent into Judas Iscariot puts murderous intent into him and enters into him. And a very interesting part about that is right after that takes place in John 13, verse 30, we read that having received the piece of bread, talking about Judas, he then went out immediately. So he left them. He's going to go betray the light now. But it says, just this interesting four words, it says, and it was night, and it was night. The time when Judas decides to leave to betray Jesus, it was night. That's not on accident that he notes that. He notes that because it was a dark time. It was actually the ultimate example of a deed of darkness, this deed of betrayal, this deed of faithlessness to go and put Jesus to death, right? And it's very appropriate that that took place at nighttime. That took place in the darkness of the nighttime, in the secrecy of the night. In the hiddenness of the night. He snuck out of there. He went away in the darkness. He snuck out of there and he betrayed Jesus Christ when it was dark. And he sold his, He sold who, was, who he was a uh, uh, follower of. And he sold him for some silver. And he did it all in the darkness of the night. And so we can understand this here. It makes a lot of sense. He didn't want to do that in the open. Why would anyone want to do something like that in the open? The deeds of darkness are done at night. The deeds of darkness are done in the dark. And the deeds of darkness do not want the light. They don't want the light to expose them. They don't want the light to shine on them. And it's at at that point, in the night, that this major act of betrayal takes place. This major act of darkness as Judas turns against Jesus. And now we see it all kind of funneling towards this final attempt. It says... Uh, later in the book, we see that this murderous and dark scheming comes to a high point. It all funnels down and comes to a major point because they're trying to put Jesus to death. And so Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. The soldiers twist thorns and uh, make a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they mock him. They dress him in a purple robe and they scoff at him. And they scorn him and they brutally beat him as an enemy, as even though he was totally innocent Not one single accusation that he ever made was valid, that they made against him was ever valid. Here the darkness, those people who are the opponents of the light, they treat Jesus like a criminal. They gamble for his clothes while he hangs on the cross. Eventually the same Jews, this is crazy, the same Jews who were talking about how much they care about their nation back when they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus... That's what they said. We can't let Jesus get big. We can't let Lazarus get big. Because, hey, our nation is going to get wrecked. Our nation is going to be done. You want to see how insane and irrational the darkness is? Look at these Jews. They go here and they say um, they hate. You got to keep in mind, these Jews hate Caesar. They hate Rome. They don't want Rome to take over. They don't want anything good for Rome whatsoever. But yet, They previously wanted their own little nation to thrive, but now they're so blinded by darkness that in order to have the light put to death, in order that they might have Jesus crucified, they actually literally yell out, we have no king but Caesar. These same people who are so stuck in darkness are now crying out that they have no king but Caesar. It's an insane display of darkness. Really what it tells you is that when people think with a mind filled with darkness with hate towards Jesus Christ, when they can't see the face of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ, when they can't see any of that, when they think that way, what happens is they become completely delusional. They become completely mentally and spiritually blind. They become delusional. They can't act properly. They're literally insane. These Jews who supposedly care about their nation are saying, we have no king but Caesar these people who are supposed to be the descendants of King David and King Yahweh and Abraham, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They've gone completely mad. We also see that the darkness of Pilate, as he apathetically and and filled with insecurity, washes his hands and allows Jesus to be put to death, allows the light to be crucified. And finally, after many false accusations and more lies and more uh, scorning, finally, Jesus, the light of the world, is, an, is finally actually put to death on the cross. The light of the world is finally actually killed. And so, as we, we journey through the book of John, we notice that the light of heaven has constantly and viciously been opposed. We've seen this so much. This is the majority of the sermon is just to let you see how the light of the world, who is put to death on the cross, has been viciously and constantly opposed by the darkness. And at this moment, it seems like the darkness has won, right? It seems like finally they got the upper hand. Finally they crushed Jesus. Finally they have been victorious. Up to now we've seen that the darkness has opposed the light, and it seems like they've truly quenched him. He died. He's crucified. He's put in a grave. But in fact, Jesus, his light was not quenched. In fact, this very act of them putting the light to death, of putting Jesus to death, is how he won. The darkness has not won. In fact, after this moment, the light shines even brighter than ever before. The light has a new level of impact because he's finally fully accomplished his mission. The entire mission that Jesus came to accomplish in the world as the light of the world, in that moment when He's hanging on the cross, when these people think they finally won, when they finally quenched Him, when they think they finally put Him out, that moment is actually the moment when His mission is accomplished, when Jesus Christ has won. So because Jesus endured the darkness, because He endured the curse of death and darkness, and and He endured life on this earth as the light of the world, because of that, there's no longer a curse upon us. If we're in Christ, there's no longer death to be had by us. If we're in Christ because of the cross, the grip of the darkness has been loosened. The grip that hung over the whole world, that darkness that pervaded everything because of what Jesus did when they thought they had won because of what Jesus did in that moment. When they thought they had won, in fact, the grip of all the darkness was loosened. It's an incredible fact. Jesus has won the victory over the darkness in His dying and being raised. When the resurrection takes place, just like Lazarus is raised up, just like when Jesus is raised up, this shows us beautifully at the end of John. That's what we go through. We went up to the middle of John, funneled into Him being finally put to death. And then how does the book of John end? It ends with resurrection life. It ends with renewal. It ends with this new beginning. It ends with finally... This is where we wanted to get to, and the whole time the darkness thought it was winning. We can now finally have our sins removed. If, you've, if you looked at the beginning and thought, man, I know the feeling of being alienated from God, alienated from my brothers and sisters, alienated from heaven and paradise, alienated from nature itself. I toil when I work, I'm filled with pain. I'm alienated from God because of my own wicked heart and my own sin. Finally now in the gospel of Jesus Christ, finally now because Jesus is put to death in this brutal way, our darkness and our sins can be totally removed. We can have life. We can have light. We can have eternal life. And what I want us to see is this isn't just, this isn't just some distant thing, right? This isn't just something you can have one day. This isn't something you can one day experience, you can kind of dream about. In fact, no, it's a present reality. Because of what Jesus did dying on that cross, because of what he did arising from that grave, even in the present, here and now in our current life, with our ordinary body the way we have it here, we are able, even though right now we... Yeah, we're plagued by sin. Yes, right now we still feel pain. Yes, like right now we still struggle. Even today, even right now, even here as I'm preaching, as you're listening, everything, we're already partakers of the light. If you're in Christ, you're already a partaker of the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection. You already get to enjoy that. This is an already fact. This is an already reality because what Jesus has done is already finished. The light has already won. The light has already been raised from the dead and already been seated at the right hand of God. We already have this It's an already reality. And so what are the things that we can experience because of this already reality? What can we taste of? What can we experience? What can we know? What can we have take place in our life now because Jesus has overcome the darkness? Three things. We can experience the light of knowledge, the light of holiness, and the light of joy. These three spheres kind of encapsulate all of our religious life, all of our personal life, all of our living. The light of knowledge is, is the light of knowledge in, in the light of the knowledge that Jesus gives us. He actually cures the blindness in our mind. He cleanses that insanity, that delusionalness that sin causes. He, increasingly, by the Spirit of God, in all who put their trust in Jesus Christ, is cleansing our mind. The light of knowledge. The light of our vessel that we used to think is being clean because of the light that Jesus Christ is. And we can already begin to see this. If you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, you actually know what this is like. Because your whole life before that, you're insane and delusional in some sense. Like these people who hated the dark or hated the light... You were stuck in darkness. And all of a sudden in Jesus you have light. You have knowledge. You can understand the gospel. You can understand grace. You can understand all these things that you didn't understand before. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone in your face. In the face of Christ Jesus. Has shone in your heart and made your heart new. You've been illuminated. You have the light of knowledge. And you can already participate in this. The second thing is the light of holiness. This can be experienced As our evil deeds are exposed, as we come to the light, as you submit to Jesus Christ, as you bow down to Him and serve Him and worship the light, study His word, pray to Him, what happens? Good fruit begins to grow. Good fruit and holy living starts to be produced in your life. The deeds of darkness of which we are ashamed. The things which we previously did that brought us nothing but shame and misery. Those things were paid for by Jesus Christ. Those things have been conquered by Jesus Christ's death. And we're able through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, through His Holy Spirit, to cling to Christ and to not have to have those things cling to us as tightly anymore. In Jesus Christ, we suddenly have the strength and the power to become a holy people. We can be sanctified by the light of holiness Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He gives us the light of knowledge already if you're in Him. And He gives you the light of holiness. You can be sanctified. You can become holier. Your immorality, that moral darkness that so clinged to you and destroyed your life, that can finally be lifted up. That can finally be let go. You can cling to Christ and be made new. And the final thing is that it brings us already the light of joy. The light of joy is ours because of what Christ has done. In the realm of our affections. In the realm of what we want. Of what we desire. Of what we like. Of what we love. In that realm. That's where our joy is. Our joy is found in the realm of what we desire. What we like. What we love. These things. The light of joy becomes ours. Because in the resurrection power of the Holy Ghost. Because of the Holy Spirit. Because of Jesus being victorious. Because of the fact that He conquered death. And conquered hell. Because of this. Our meaningless, aimless, purposeless, joyless life as an atheist or as someone who rejects the light is gone. Suddenly you have this light of joy shining in your life. The light of the world has taken that bitterness, that darkness, that misery away from you. So in Jesus we have an infinite fountain of joy. That's throughout John another, that's a whole other concept, the water flowing. The joy, it comes in you, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and now all of a sudden you're a fountain of living water, infinite fountain of joy, as the light of joy shines upon you. This doesn't mean every single day of your life is going to be happy, and you're always going to be feeling great. It just means that now an already reality for a Christian, someone who's submitted to God, and is, is, is putting all of their faith and their hope and their life in God, is that they have this light of joy. That's probably the first emotion, the first thing you feel when you become a Christian. I think you should think about this and remember, when was the day I became a Christian? When I looked at the cross, when I looked at my sin, when I looked at who I am, and I saw myself clearly for the first time as a dark person, but I also saw Jesus. I looked at His face. I looked at the fact that He was smiling at me and saying, you can come to me anyways because I paid for it. What's the first thing you feel? I'm feeling it as I tell you. It's joy. It's joy. It's the light of joy, right? You Literally, you can't help but feel joy. It's like, come on. It's the light of joy. So we already, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, have the light of knowledge, the light of holiness, the light of joy. This has become a reality for us. Jesus is the light of the world. And he makes this a possibility. So because of this, if we have this already a reality in our life, then we need to go out into the world. As his kingdom grows, as his church expands, As our calling as Christians is to go out and be Christians. Go out and use our knowledge. Use all the light. Use the joy. Live a holy life. As we go out, we need to be like Jesus says in Matthew 5. It says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not for no reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, gave you this whole already renewal, this already ignited life within yourself. It's not for no reason. It's for a great reason. And the reason is that God's kingdom is growing. God has sent out his people into this world filled with the Spirit to be a light let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And we know that it's important to count the cost, too. I'm getting very excited. I love all this stuff, but it's important to count the cost. You have to remember, we just spent like three quarters of this sermon talking about how the darkness opposes the light. When you go out and you are the light of the world, letting your good deeds shine before men, expect to feel opposed. Expect to f- encounter conflict. The light will not and has never, ever been overcome by the darkness. So that's our encouragement. It's never going to be overcome, but it will always be opposed in this time, in this life, in this world. And that's proven to us in John 15, verse 18 to 20. It says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. Jesus was the light of the world. He shone his light on us as we look to his face, as we acknowledge our sin, as we repent and believe in him. And so we should expect to be treated no better than he was treated. We spent so much time looking at how he was treated. So don't be surprised by that. But let that almost serve as a source of more joy. Because it's only for a short time left, really. It's only for a short life. It's only for a short time on this journey that you're going to have to endure this, that you're going to have to put up with this opposition. Soon there's going to be a new dawn, a new creation, a new day, when all things, everything, is going to be made new in the city of God. And that's why this whole theme of light is amazing. John, by the way... The same guy who wrote all about light here also wrote all about light in the book of Revelation. which is this wonderful thing we get to look forward to. In the city of God, we get to look forward to a future. In that future, in a short time, we don't have a long time to wait, actually. It might only be a few years. In that future, we're going to have back to the absolute state of perfection. Back to the absolute state of harmony. And that's why in Revelations 21, verse 23, on this theme of light, it says, and the city has no need of sun. This is the city of God. This is the new creation. This is when Jesus coming as the light of the world comes to its fullness. It says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Its light is God. Its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is going to light up eternally. So we look forward to the new creation, to the city of our God where we're going to dwell in fullness, in richness, in perfection, in the light, in the greatest way, greater than we ever have known before. Right now, we taste it already, but we look forward to a day when we're going to have it even in a fuller, even in a more magnificent way. And all of this is possible all of this hope, all of this amazing story about how Jesus was opposed and he was put to death and, he's, and, and how God created the world in the very beginning in Genesis, speaking light into the creation. All of this that we've covered. We basically cover the whole Bible. All of this is made possible because Jesus Christ came into the world. And Jesus is the light of the world. And this is an amazing reality for us. This theme of light is the most used element of nature to speak about God. And we know Jesus is the light of the world. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Dear Father, God, we do thank you so much that you sent your Son as a light into the world. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful richness, the wonderful imagery that we get to look at and see, but also that we get to already feel the reality of what Jesus Christ has done. When we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus Christ, we get to have our minds healed, our hearts and our desires healed, our joy full. We can have hope that in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of your name, In the power of the Holy Spirit, God, we have an actual hope that the sins that cling on us, that plague us now for this time being, can be cast away. And we look forward with joy and with longing towards that day when all things will be light. We won't have darkness anymore. We won't have any more of this struggle that goes on here. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.